everybody, Cora here. Welcome back to Rev on Air, the Rev on Vair podcast, a place for sustainable storytelling with founders, activists, creatives, and phenomenal individuals who are paving the way for a more conscious future for us all. Today, I'm so excited to have John Hackett with me, the CEO of Arena Flowers, which is known as the most ethical florist in the UK. John and I will discuss whether or not a global floral industry can ever be truly sustainable, the nuances of supply chains and the human impact of creating an ethical business, and also the arguments for and against both localization and globalization. This is really a thought-provoking conversation and I cannot wait to share it with you all. But first, I want to hand you over to Taylor on our team, who is an avid fan of the brand as has been getting to experience their florals firsthand. Hi, Rev on Air listeners, Taylor here from Rev. Ahead of Cora's conversation with John, I wanted to share a bit more about Arena Flowers, the sponsors of today's episode. Arena Flowers is my personal go-to florist here in the UK, as they have been voted the UK's most ethical florist five years in a row. The brand's purpose is to help mark life's moments with beautiful flowers that don't cost the earth. Sustainability is really at the heart of everything they do as a company, and they are completely transparent about their supply chain. To find out more about Arena Flowers and to shop their gorgeous array of arrangements, head to arenaflowers.com. That's A-R-E-N-A-F-L-O-W-E-R-S.com. Now on to Cora and John. So first of all, John, thank you so much for joining me today. I am a huge fan of um, having cut flowers around the house. So I'm very excited to speak to you about Arena and how you have done this so ethically. And I guess, you know, just to kind of start things off with, can you tell us a little bit about your process in coming into Arena? I know that you worked in the floral industry for a while beforehand, but, you know, how you ended up as CEO of this um, kind of extraordinary company, really. Thank you. Um, well, it's great to be here, and um, thanks for having us on. I, I have, I've been in flowers now for almost 25 years, which is horrific, but also deeply pleasing because uh, it's a great industry. I think uh, I was first made aware of Arena by a guy called Will Wynn, who was the founder, and he is just a deeply uh, exciting guy to be around. He's hugely entrepreneurial and um, very focused on growth and ambitious. And I, I liked the idea of joining a business in the e-commerce space, having been involved in supermarket supply for so many years. And Will was just inspirational. And he he brought me in and then left me to it. And what we've done over the last seven or eight years has been a lot of fun. Amazing. And can you speak a little bit about, you know, I think a lot of people think of cut flowers and they just think of beauty um, and goodness and ceremonial things. And you know, in researching this episode and just through my own knowledge, I know that the flower industry can actually be a very unsustainable and and not very beautiful place. So can you give us a little bit of information on some of the issues that you have seen when it comes to the floral industry not being ethical? You're, 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 you're so right to raise it. It's, um, it's, we know, we all know we live in a really fragile world and I think, often flowers certainly for the uk are imported from places where that ecosystem is even more perilous um and i've seen firsthand the good that the industry can do but also the, the, the sort of tragic impact it can have when people don't 
look after their supply chains and the people in them properly. Um, so some good examples would be for the North American market, there's been well-publicized uh, challenges in sourcing from Colombia and Ecuador, where women on farms have been abused and women on farms have been subject to um, some horrifically sort of traditional patriarchal um, relationships where supervisors and managers have taken and exploited women, um, but also the women working in the industry have been subject to exposed to chemicals that they ought not to be handling. And that's had you know, significant impacts on um, child fertility rates and uh, disability. Um, thankfully, most of those issues have been cleared up and are now far better regulated, but where exploitation can exist, it finds a way of existing, is my experience. Um, and so it's incumbent on any of us working in, in, in those sorts of supply chains to make sure that you're doing everything you can to prevent it. Um, so when I joined Arena, one of the things that I really thought about was like, what did we want to do with the brand and, and what, what, would, what did the brand represent? And will, like I say, hugely entrepreneurial, just be the best, just be the best. Well, the best is entirely in the eye of the beholder. Like, what does that mean? And so I reflected on some of the experience I'd had elsewhere and the things that made me proudest you know, you, you, great to go home and you've made your budget, great to go home and you, you hit your revenue target, that's great, right? But there are weeks and months when that just can't happen for whatever reason. So what, what made me proud in those moments, what I reflected on was that we built maternity hospitals outside Nairobi, the first with ultrasound. We built um, BCT clinics in, um, in Naivasha for people who were um, at risk of contracting HIV and then counseling programs for those that had. And those things, you know, they, they live with you. You're making a lasting impact. And I think knowing that you can have that impact in these fragile economies um, is, is the thing that motivates us to then say, well, that's what we'll do with Arena. We'll make Arena a place we can all be proud to work at every day, knowing that irrespective of what we do in terms of revenue and EBITDA, we have made a difference to people's lives somewhere. Yeah. Well, that's amazing. And it's really nice to hear companies with wider goals that are actually achieving them. And I think, you know, it was really interesting. You guys got, I believe, a, a perfect 100 out of 100 score on the ethical company index. And, you know, it's so funny because I feel like, especially in running this podcast, you hear about so many businesses that are working towards sustainability or we have goals in place for 2030 or 2050 or you know whatnot um and it's just really refreshing to speak to somebody who's actually like you know we've actually hit the goals and we're done and we're now just you know doing well, um because it can really be like are you working towards this for 2030 um so i would just love to hear actually first of all can you tell anybody who might not be familiar with it what the ethical company index is how their metrics work you know just give us a bit of a background on that yeah, sure. So um, again, thank you. That's very generous. Um, we we we've actually scored 100% on that score now for the last five years, and we've been topping it for about 12. Um, just to just to be clear, my expectation is that they should make it more rigorous now, because if, if anyone's scoring 100%, that's not a fair test. And if we're scoring consistently 100%, that means we you know we should we, we should always be working harder, right? So achieving 100%. Yeah, I think creates a, a sense of complacency that I don't want to exist in our business. Mm -hmm. um, but that's not to say that the test is without rigor. So we are audited independently on um, worker welfare schemes and pay schemes and suppliers and the way we manage suppliers, the way we pay them, the way we vet them. 
Um, then also whether we've got any history of um, trading with other businesses or countries uh, that have issues with corruption um, and political influence. So are, are we free of um, any of the things that would impair lives in communities, um, either because we're working with governments uh, who are corrupt or working with um, agencies who are corrupt? Have we done enough to protect our workers both here and abroad, directly and indirectly in our supply chain from risk of exploitation? Um, and then have we done all we can to remove packaging, water and um, energy consumption to reduce those three things uh, that, that effectively um, are carbon uh, carbon, uh, problems, carbon problems are creating uh, a carbon drag for us. Now, I would love to say uh, that we're we're perfect. We're not. You know, we just can't be. And I think one of the one of the challenges of being the leading light on that that, that threshold of scoring 100% is that there are many, many, many voices out there who will disagree with that score. Who mm -hmm. will say completely correctly. Um, how can you be the most sustainable flower business in the UK when you import flowers? Um, and, you know, grown, not flown is a, is a sensible thing to argue for. I think my, my, my defense of it and my point continues to be that we're not, we're not perfect. And whilst I completely disagree with um, those people who say we're on a journey and 2023 is fine, but by 2035 we'll be there. It's nonsense. You've got to set yourself really hard targets and you've got to set those targets and then accept that you'll either achieve them or not. But but that's your goals shouldn't change. Um, our goals are to reduce the amount of um, miles that we have. But we know that we can't eradicate them because if we want to have a flower business that, that trades 52 weeks of the year and satisfies customers, then we need to have some sort of choice. What we try and do and try to measure it is are we reducing the number of air miles each year despite the fact we're growing our volume? Um, and so the share of air mile product is now uh, hard, more, I think close to 54, 55% lower than it was uh, three years ago. Um, and that's almost 100% lower than it was six years ago. Yeah. Um, so by, by taking very, very clear action um, and making sure that we stick to our commitment on those actions, um, we can see and measure growth uh, or measure decline in that share, but measure our growth in terms of sustainability year on year. And we, that, that's it's just pivotal. It's central to everything we do in the business. We, we, yeah. we don't allow people to make decisions without being, without acknowledging those, those, those responsibilities. And it's interesting, you know, my husband and I were talking about this last night, you know, post, well, England is a very, very small country that, you know, ideally it would be amazing if England could grow all of its own food and produce all of its own wood and all yeah. of its own wine and cheese and flowers and all of these things. And I think, you know, um, Brexit is really highlighting just how much the limitations of the UK's ability to produce things. I would I would argue just sheer, sheer through its scale, you know, through its size, yeah. there's just not yeah. enough land. And so how do you, because I feel like there's, there's two really strong arguments here. It's like one is that, you know, 100% we should be keeping things as local, as close to home as possible. But then also in a world that is getting more and more impacted by climate change and political issues and, you know, disturbances in the way that we've conventionally done things, you know, how do you kind of look at globalization and 
where you're sourcing from and, you know, keeping this sort of network of international growers alongside maybe what you're able to cultivate within the UK? Like, do you think about that? Is that something where you're like, oh, I really, I, we'd like to produce, we'd like to get more British flowers in, or we'd actually prefer to get more flowers in from, you know, Kenya, because we'd prefer to support that, you know, like, how do you kind it's of- hard. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's, you, you, you pose such a, like, it's a, it's a, it's a really important question. And I think it's, if, if, um, if, you, if we were setting the business up today and we had unlimited funds, what would I do? I'd probably attach the business to some sort of server farm and then grow vertical roses, like in, a, in a, some sort of, you know, modern um, vertical glass house, um, using all the heat that was surplus from a server farm and then have a fulfillment facility right next to it and then have all our flowers grown under um, hydroponics and UV lighting um, in the UK and then distributed right by electric bikes that would be the the optimal kind of world vision right and, and it would be an amazing thing to be part of but that's just not reality um, and so and, and and we'd also we have this these existing commitments as you say with fair trade farms in in Kenya um, we have existing commitments um, to other growers in North Africa um, and, and those in, in every one of those places I can speak Particularly to and, and really cognizant of the difference we've made to those lives, right? Those communities. We we we, we often the, the UK when we talk about sustainability often talks about we shouldn't be importing anything. And and I I would genuinely love 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 there not to be an established network of brilliant growers in Kenya that um, airlifts product to the UK. I'd love that not to exist for the UK. But I'd hate to see what that would do to Kenya. Um, yeah. And we are one of only two businesses in the UK that pays fair trade rates. Um, whether we market the product as fair trade or not, it's just us and the co-op. Um, the cooperative uh, flowers are all, they, they share the same value as us. So they, whether, whether you market it as fair trade or not, you pay the fair trade premium, which means that there's a 13% increase in the amount that goes to the grower and the grower then use that 13% to benefit people on the farm, typically women. Um, and that's like fundamentally important to us. Where I get really frustrated for it is that, is that there are many, many, many of our competitive brands who will say, oh, we, we buy from Fairtrade Farms. You, you do, you buy from Fairtrade Farms that have gone through the whole process of getting audited and getting accredited and all that work, but you don't pay them the Fairtrade premium. So all you're doing is marketing the idea of an, of an, of a, of a, an idealistic um, supply chain, but you're not supporting it. We don't just do that. We do that for every single stem, whether we market it as fair trade or not. So I, I think in, in all these things, like globalization versus local grown, the intention should always be to buy local, but it's nuanced and it's um, specific to your industry. And I think that what you must, my belief is that what you must do is in the event that you are sourcing from further afield, have the same rigor as you'd have and have, have eyes on it as, as you would locally and then do everything you can to support those schemes that you know, empower people, reward them fairly and provide dignity in the workplace. Those are the things that, um, that are important to me and I think should be evident in every supply chain. Sadly, yeah. they're not. Yeah. So your last answer, John, leads me to a question that I think about a lot, which is, you know, where is the role of tech? Because you're saying like your ideal solution would be, you know, 
hyponic growing and electric bikes. And I don't know, you know, probably like solar panels on huge greenhouses. And it always strikes me as funny that we're always like, oh, we, we sort of have the solutions, but we don't have the solutions. Like, you know, our phones have more technology on them than the original like Apollo 13 mission, you know, at our fingertips at any moment. What you're talking about doing doesn't seem that far out as an idea, but like, why would you say that it couldn't be a reality doing it that way? I, I, I think it's a great point. I think you, it could, it really could be a reality. I think it's, um, it takes, obviously those things take huge investment. And I think where we found, what, what's been really interesting in the last couple of years or 10 years of, of um, floriculture is those businesses that have been well invested are those businesses that position themselves as tech businesses first and foremost that happen to be supplying flowers, right? Yeah. Um, I think we're starting to see that unwind a little bit. Um, and I would hope that the challenges of Brexit and the challenges of, um, globalization and fractured supply chains that have been caused post-pandemic have evidenced the need for investment to really consider the sort of more agricultural stuff and I mean agricultural in both senses you know the, the stuff that just puts food on a plate right that's fundamentally important and so anything you can do that um, I, I think anything we can do to encourage investment into this sector is a good thing whether or not I've yet to be able to persuade anyone with sufficient finance. I have tried um, and probably speaks more to me than it does about the financiers. But it, um, I, have, I have spoken to a couple to, to talk about the idea of um, the notion of pegging on the back of a, um, of a server farm. And I think everyone likes the, the concept, but no one's yet been prepared to stump up the 20 million sterling to do it. Um, and I think that's probably a lot to do with the uncertainty in um in contracts right so you know you you build a brand and you, and you build it out but brands come and go um and we, we we it's quite difficult anyone who's involved in flowers will know it, margins are typically quite thin um and so building out a brand that is successful enough to sustain um growth through uh the last few years and also generate the kind of margins that would be required to 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 support that kind of financial commitment, I think are just few and far between. I don't think that means that it shouldn't happen. I just don't think there's a market opportunity just yet. Right, and so I think that that leads me on to, you know, my next question, which is, it's, and it's funny, it's totally unrelated to flowers, but I feel like you'll have an interesting answer, is like in the next say 20 to 30 years as climate change becomes extremely, well, it will inevitably affect the realities of our day-to-day -day businesses. You know, I do believe governments will eventually have to mandate certain, you know, climate targets. Otherwise, it's just not going to, you know, we're not going to be here. So do you see in, in your dealings with all of these countries, especially places like you're dealing with in Africa, where drought is now so severe that, I mean, you're seeing pictures of animals just lying dead because they can't find anywhere to drink water. And, you know, I'm really curious working in countries like that and then also seeing what's happening in the UK and the realities of like the growing season changing there. I mean, like the atmosphere, the climate, the soil, the weather, it's all changing. How are you guys kind of thinking about that with like a long-term strategy? And like, do you take that to investors? Do you talk about it internally? Are you putting plans in place for the realities of a, a much more uncertain world in terms of climate? Exactly. 
I think it's it's the it's the single biggest um, focus of our tenure our, our tenure reach. We can't really predict much further beyond that uh, yeah. in terms of climate because it's changing so markedly and so rapidly. Um, and that in and of itself is a problem, right? So you, we should be able to forecast 20 years on climate with certitude. I, mean, I don't think anyone can. Uh, um, so we're focusing 10 years out. Um, in our 10 year plans, it's all about investing in the right growers and committing the right kind of commitment, making the right kind of commitment to them. Weirdly, that's really unusual. It's really, really unusual in our industry. And I'm talking about from supermarkets right through to um, artisanal growers. It's really unusual for people to be talking about five and 10 year contracts um, and commitments and those commitments to be something more than just price. So our commitments are to the way we'll work, to the way we index link price and also to the things we expect of our, of our suppliers. So to provide us with some confidence around their management of soil, their management of infrastructure, their management of water. Um, everything that we do around that is about reducing impacts. So thinking about Kenya, Kenya the, the situation in Kenya at the moment is horrific, horrific. Yet all of our farms are protected. Now, that can be in and of itself the criticism of what we're doing because there's water that's spare, but that water's only spare because of the conservation elements, the conservation efforts we've gone to with growers to make sure that they're harvesting all the grey water that ever lands on that farm. So every single part of the farm is covered with tarpaulin where we can have it. And then that tarpaulin pushes back into reservoirs and those reservoirs take all the water that falls. We don't abstract anything from the ground. We don't take anything. We don't divert rivers or any other water courses, but the water that would have fallen in those 20 or 30 hectares falls specifically for those, for those farms. There are arguments against that, right? Because that water would have fallen onto ground that wasn't being farmed, that water would have fallen into rivers and water courses, blah, blah, blah. But I think all we can do is, is try and protect the ecology of the area that we're working in and try and make sure that we are not taking or abstracting, particularly with water, abstracting anything that would um, impact the lives of people literally and figuratively downstream. Um, it, it feels to me like the only responsible thing to do. And yet, I, I re return to the point, it is utterly atypical of what happens in this industry. And it's utterly atypical of what's happening in the countries generally. Um, where, where, I think, where I think industry has more to do is, is effectively acting like local government, right? So supporting governments where, where local governments don't really exist or don't think and plan for the future, we have to. Um, and and I, I, I only wish that we were a bigger organisation and were able to have a greater impact. Yeah. We are going to take a quick break to talk a bit more about our sponsors today, Arena Flowers. The flower industry is so full of plastic, waste and pollution, but Arena Flowers is truly pioneering a different route forward so flowers can be grown and purchased ethically. They have the first closed loop system in the industry, as the paper they use to wrap their flowers is made completely from their own green waste. That means offcuts, stems, leaves, and more. We love that when you buy from Arena, not only are you getting a fantastic centerpiece, but you are also making a global impact. To read more about their commitment to sustainability and to shop their selection, head to arenaflowers.com. Now back to the episode. Well, I mean, it's and it's really interesting. So, you know, we've chatted about water, but another thing that I saw on your website is that you guys have gotten rid of pesticide use, which yep. is 
really interesting. And I think something, you know, I, I had a family friend over the other day and I hadn't had any cut flowers. We live in Maine now and we hadn't had any cut flowers in the house for months because I've done, you know, a moratorium on buying any, um, you know, imported flowers. And we just had some like local sustainable tulip growers come up. And I was talking about how happy I was. And this person was like, why is it bad to have like imported cut flower? Like, why is it bad? And I was like, oh my God, literally. And the first thing I said was like, well, for me, like with all of these things I'm doing around detoxing our lives, like the pesticide use in these flowers and the chemicals and the refrigerants and all of this stuff is just insane. So I really looked into this, but can you speak a little bit about that and why you guys decided that you had to get rid of it in your own supply chain? Um, yeah, I mean, again, again, back to one of the first answers, really, that um, we knew, we, we all know, right, pesticides are harmful, right, they just are, and they're harmful to uh, the people that handle them and the, the, the land that they then are sprayed upon, and, and then also the ecosystem that sits around it. Um, in the UK and, and Europe, you know, we are, we're, we're, we're hugely focused on um, making sure that we don't have nicotine, I never pronounced it correctly, I'm not going to even try again. I'm going to embarrass myself. Um, but um, we're preventing bees. The, the bees, the ecology of bees is being affected by um, many pesticides that are that should be banned in the UK and Europe and that aren't. Um, and so ensuring that we protect bees, and that's, that's, that's an easy thing to talk about because people like to talk about um, kind of abstract. But actually what we should be thinking first and foremost is the women and, and mainly women who work on farms, right? That, that's the first, that's the first port of call. And so our port of call, our, our reference point was really simple. If there are ways in which pesticides can be removed, then we should only buy from those people who can do that. Um, and so we use, um, we work with farms who have integrated pest management. Um, and so IPM is a really effective way of using predatory bugs, kind bugs to go after um, bugs that they would um, would otherwise blight our crops. Now, that sometimes means that we get complaints from customers because I've seen a, a spider in my, um, or I've seen a fly in my in my bouquet. Don't worry, it's a it's a good one, right? We don't have anything that comes through the system. And actually, the evidence of small mites in your flowers is entirely natural. And actually, the the problem we've got is that we've sanitized our expectation, our, our expectations of of what fresh product looks like have been sanitized so completely by the way we blitzed them through the 70s 80s and 90s with harsh chemicals um, that actually the education piece resides with customers um, we need to do a better job of making sure people understand what fresh product should feel like and what, and what, what should be present and what shouldn't be present um, and a, a few small mites is a good thing right and, and yeah. I, I think that's so so we researched it fully we, we looked at farms that did and farms that didn't we found ways of, um, of moving some of our products immediately to IPM only. And then the hard bit is, is actually saying to farms that either weren't in that program or were only beginning to embark on that program, how do we transition you from year one to year three from moving completely away from pesticides? Um, the thing, I have to be honest, the thing that helped us most of all wasn't any persuasive argument by me, wasn't any kind of campaign. It was cost. Um, you know, the, the, the physical cost of pesticide is expensive. And if you can provide growers with ways of reducing that cost, improving their bottom line, 
um, that happens to be an ecological solution as well, that's the, the very best outcome because then you're not trying to, um, excuse the clumsy metaphor, you're not trying to push water up a hill, right? But it's that, that often that is the case. You're trying to persuade people that, of things that are going to add cost to their business, that's tricky. Where we've been able to help is sometimes to take some of the burden of that pain. Um, so where growers have had to invest a bit upfront, we've paid them more. Um, and that encourages them to take the first steps on a journey that ultimately yield them better results. And then ultimately get to the right place where everybody wins. It's really interesting because when I have spoken to people on the podcast about this same issue within like the food space, there it's always the pushback that doing things organic, regeneratively, biodynamically, all of these things are so much more expensive. And are you saying that, that, Yes, but really just the upfront cost yeah. is like the main, the main thing. And then, you know, a few years down the line, you're going to be in a much better position financially. Certainly for ornamental flowers, that's, that's absolutely the case. Um, organic is hard, right? There's, there's no question that, you know, setting aside land and, and allowing it to be, be classified as organic and not using it for three or four or five years. That's, that's a huge commitment. I, I, so I don't, I don't, I don't um, in any way underestimate the challenge of people trying to pivot to organic, but to move to a, um, a biosustainable uh, way of managing crops. No, I, I completely, I completely refute the idea that it has to be more expensive. It doesn't. Um, there are just some cash flow, you know, elements that have to be managed. Um, but again, with the right plan, the right partnership, and most importantly, the right framework of a long-term commitment, um, I think it's entirely achievable with yeah now adding cost in fact i think it shrinks cost well that's that's very good to hear and very few people have ever said that they think that you know there is an industry where you can go pesticide free and shrink costs so i love that that is something that is not only it's proven by by what you're doing and i think you know moving on to this idea one of the things i wanted to talk about that i saw on your site is you know this term net zero which we're starting to see a lot more companies putting out and as i mentioned before there are certainly different dates associated with net zero goals can you speak a little bit because i think a lot of people are a little confused about it they're seeing huge corporations saying we're getting to net zero and then we're seeing net zero is total greenwashing and then we're seeing no net zero is like extremely important so can you speak a little bit about arena's take on it i can speak about this being probably the most challenging part of our business today if i think about our sustainability journey and it's not it's not a i don't have a perfect answer for this um we we we, we measured our carbon footprint end to end um every every scope one two three um and worked out that it's a, somewhere between 12 and 13 kilos of carbon um for an average bouquet from end to end uh which is huge right just enormous and so then we looked at like how do we find ways we're not going to get that we're not going to get that to zero so zero carbon emissions on that scale is is almost impossible but i think it is impossible to achieve yeah um so how do we get to a place where we don't want to offset, right? We, we don't want to just buy credits that just feels entirely in, in, improper. So what, what can we do? So we can plant trees, right? We can, we can do that. Okay, so let's plant some trees. So we started planting trees and we thought very hard about who we partnered with and how we partnered and what the offset would be. And we didn't want to plant just in the UK because then it's, you know, the, you know, the weather here, right? It's, um, I'm on a lucky day today, but 
Um, most days it's not like that. Um, and so you've got trees that are dormant for four or five months of the year. They're not abstracting carbon. There's, there's, no, um, there's no offset benefit and it takes 30, 40 years of maturation. So we planted in uh, Madagascar uh, with even deforestation. And we had a plan about how much carbon could be um, sequestered by mangrove and how quickly we'd reach maturation. And now we've got two million trees planted. And so that all worked super well in our calculation to um, reduce effectively through that planting scheme to reduce some of our carbon. Unfortunately, Eden have recently um, rode back on their pledge, their initial pledge um, on, on, on the carbon sequestered by each tree and the fact that they'd be a gold accredited scheme. And that leaves me genuinely, and I'm, I'm, I'm bearing my soul, right? This is, this is a really live topic in our business. Um, it's, it leaves me in a really difficult position because the, the, planting, the planting position with, with Eden, two, two million trees plus planted in areas that are suffering from deforestation, massive poverty, huge inequality, um, gender challenges, and, um, and coastal erosion, everything speaks to the value of planting trees there. But if I get no benefit from it and I can't measure the benefit of it, I can't quantify the benefit of it, then my net position on carbon is not affected by that. You know, I, I know there's benefit, but I can't use it. So that's problematic because ideally, I wanna be able to speak to consumers about the, the journey we're on and the, the progress we're making, but actually, that scheme offers me no progress. So do I abandon all that good stuff that's happening over there and then pivot back to something where we plant trees in the UK and grow a forest here, um, albeit it sequesters carbon at a far reduced rate. That, that, and and that, I think that is a, a really good microcosm nuance. It, it highlights the nuance of these, these challenges, right? You know, one thing definitely happens and does good work over there, but it doesn't help me with my political or public positioning um, of our carbon journey. And I can see why so many businesses take the easy option and will just say, oh, we'll just buy some offsets, we'll buy some credits, right? It's just the easy thing to do. It has very little benefit to the world. It has very little benefit to, or it doesn't link back to their brand and, and the impact they're having, but it's just the easy thing to communicate. And so in a microcosm, it's that whole challenge of, this is complex and this requires investigation. It requires deep thought. It requires people thinking about it seriously but most people don't give it bandwidth. And therefore the shorthand answer is, oh, we are, we're going for net zero. That, that's one element of what we're doing, Corey. The other, the other thing is obviously, we're doing everything we can to reduce our carbon in the first instance. So, so we've stripped out uh, many millions of um, distribution miles. Um, and that's by more effective planning of routing, but also by reducing uh, the number of boxes that we ship and the size of the boxes that we ship and therefore the number of trucks that are required to move products around. Um, we've reduced our weight um, and reduced the uh, packaging that we use to, to ship products anyway. So again, we can pack more densely. We're packing um, into sea freight more than air freight. And any, anything we can do that is reducing our total output, our total consumption of carbon is, is the first step. Um, we know we need some sort of um, sequestration plan um, because otherwise we'll never get to a net zero. And it's, like I say, it's, it's just become a whole lot more complex than I thought it was ever going to be because of um, the actions of the third party that we've we partnered with. Um, and it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's complex.
It is super complex. And you know what, John, when we're off, remind me, I'm going to email you. My friend Arizona has set up the first um, charity that is doing basically regenerative product projects around the world. So she's hooking up like donors with regenerative farmers where you sponsor an actual farm with actual progress, with education that goes alongside that. Love that. And- it's amazing. It's called dirt charity. It's all about regenerating the soil and like carbon sequestration of like healthy soil. So when we're done, I'll email you about that. I feel like you would actually love it. Um, but I think it's, and thank you for your honesty, because I think we have to be honest about the problems in order to solve them. And I think oftentimes when people are sort of saying like, like you said, you know, like, Oh, we're just going to buy carbon credits. That is such an, easy I'm using like quotation mark easy solution to like the most complex problems that you know it just sort of is nice to hear somebody say that like this is a this is a journey that we need to discuss and find more options to to win with you know because like we said there is a certain element of like we live in a global world there are going to be carbon footprints how do we do this the best that we can Uh exactly um yeah it's it's just super complex. And I, I think it's also the Wild West is, is, a, is a, probably an appropriate phrase, but there's, a, there's an element of it's a bit like the Wild West, right? where there were businesses just spring up everywhere trying to help. help. There are so many businesses out there just trying to profiteer from this. And I don't, I don't classify Eden as one of those, but I, I do think that as Eden have found their way and understood what they can and can't do and the limitations of their schemes, um, businesses like ours have, have you know, have, I've had to, we'll, we'll, we'll have to reconsider, right? We'll have to reconsider what they do. And, and, and it's, it's super frustrating when we have a very, very clear purpose, a very clear objective, a very clear uh, commitment to, to what we want to achieve to then find that, you know, um, other businesses aren't able to sustain that, that path that we're on, right? And, and so, um, or support that path that we're on as we, as we would have hoped. That's, yeah. But I, but I guess it's just the nature of, you know, we, we got in early and we've we've been committed to it early. There are going to be um, bumps in the road. Yeah, well, exactly. And I think it leads me nicely into sort of my final topic that I wanted to touch upon, which is as a CEO, your management style, because I would imagine having employees that are committed to this, that are genuinely passionate and solution driven and you know don't get discouraged when things get hard you know I feel like I feel like we're in a time when we almost have to retrain a whole new workforce with whole new goals like because the future of the economy is going to have to look different if we're going to survive as a human race in my opinion you know like the kids that are coming up now the employees that we're doing the workplace cultures that we're creating like you know, there has to be a, a new kind of found, in my opinion, anyway, you might disagree, but there's got to be like purpose and and real passion and real innovation within our workforces. And I, I'm just curious as to how you're sort of implementing that at Arena. You know, I was reading that you guys did a greenhouse initiative at your headquarters and you've got all these sort of interesting employee options going on. And I just wanted you to chat a little bit about that. I mean... I absolutely agree with you. There's no disagreement at all. I, I think you, you've described absolutely perfectly um, what the future workforce will look like and, and what employers will need to respond to. I think we're kind of lucky. Um, well, no, not lucky. We, 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 we designed it and, and um, 
but but we we've designed we've designed a business and we've described a business and built a business that is entirely purpose driven, right? So we we've made decisions that have cost us absolutely on the bottom line every day. It costs us on the bottom line, but it but it's um it's an investment that we think is like fundamental to our future and fundamental to not just our brand position, but the way we want to position the brand. So it's not about just how it looks for the customer, but the way we want to operate as people. And so I think when we recruit people, when people join the team, um, it's very, very clear what we represent them. It's very, very clear what we stand for. It's very, very clear where our priorities lie. And if you're misaligned to that, either we'll sniff that out at interview um, or you'll sniff it out at interview, right? And 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 you, it, it just won't be a very comfortable place for you to work if you're not aligned to that. And so what I have been blessed by within the business here are a team of people who share our purpose, who share our ambition for, for improving the world um, and, and the world particularly around um, our supply chain um, and who are motivated by that. And so, of course, there are, you know, all the usual um, the challenges of management and the um, the challenges of compensation and but but i think our business is served better because of our purposes and our recruitment is made easier because of that and our compensation packages are uh, perhaps you know easier to negotiate because people know that they sh they're, they're coming to work within a business and environment that that echoes their own ambitions for the planet that echoes their own ambitions for their personal growth um and yeah, a, bu a business with purpose is a great place to be as long as you're aligned to that purpose. And I, I think, um, yeah, we're, we're, we're super lucky. We've got a team of people who are entirely almost evangelical, more, more than, almost more than I am, <laughs> almost more than I am um, about our role and, um, and purpose. Yeah. Well, that's, that's an amazing answer and super great. So then, John, I'm going to finish with the, the same question I ask everybody because we often touch upon really dark topics on this podcast. So I always like to end on a high note. And that is, what is making you feel the most hopeful about the future within your own industry? That, that a small business like ours um, can exact change and that that change is starting to permeate through the behaviors of some of our competitors um and i am entirely thrilled by that really i i th there is there is no benefit if we operate independently there's no benefit if we try and become the biggest global flower business we won't that's not gonna that's not gonna happen much as my shareholders won't want to say that um it's unlikely that's gonna happen so what we've got to hope we do is is influence change that that spreads and um, is yeah is, is is bringing benefit through supply chains that we don't touch and I think we're starting to see some of that and that makes me optimistic. Amazing. Well, thank you so much, John. It was such a pleasure speaking to you and learning about Arena and you know best of luck with all of your new ventures and and um, I'm just so pleased with what you guys have achieved so far and can't wait to see what else you do in the future. Well, thank you so much and keep fighting the good fight. Thank you for all you do.